everyone, and welcome to That Wellness Podcast with Natalie Deering. I'm sitting here once again with Stephanie Ryle. Stephanie is a licensed professional counselor, a nationally certified counselor, a board-certified neurotherapist, and a quantitative EEG diplomat in candidacy. She specializes in making mental health measurable using the EEG and using brain training techniques to help clients without medication. And combines this with psychotherapy and Christian counseling when applicable. She is also the founder of Right Mind Wellness Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome, Stephanie, once again to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm really excited that you're back. I really enjoyed our first conversation where you were able to kind of help dissect using my EEG information after I did it, which was really Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. Oh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was so neat. And I I still I I like to reference back to those notes that I took from that podcast episode, but also especially from when we had the meeting where you kind of went through everything about my brain. (laughs) I look back at those notes and they're like, oh, yeah, my parts of me are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This and that and this and that. So it's been (laughs) really so validating. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. And I know that you had shared with me after the first time we had chatted that you really love, you know, this, this topic of trauma in the brain. And I know that you also host a, I think you said, what's a six hour long training (laughs) about all this information for therapists. Yeah. And anybody um, can take yeah. it. Even if, if you need CEs, you can get CEs for it, but any lay person can go on Heisel and Associates and watch it. Okay. Yeah. I can get that link from you and I'll put that in the show notes. Great. Cause like I was telling you before we hit record, a friend of mine who's a therapist took that training, didn't know that I knew you, but just told me in the midst mm-hmm. of one of our conversations that she had took this training and it was really amazing. And I looked at her and I said, was it Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> She was like, yes. How did you know that? I was like, I know her. (laughs) Yes. So so it's a great training and I'm excited to, to take that training myself and then to also have this opportunity with us together today to talk for an hour, kind of this can majorly condensed version Mm -hmm. of trauma in the brain, but hopefully the listeners can, you know, come away from this conversation feeling like They've learned some stuff, and if it has sparked their interest even further, they can reference the link in the show notes to where to get your six-hour-long training. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Yes. I'm so excited to talk about this. Okay. All of us to know, and so many more people have trauma than they even realize. It's it's just helpful. Right. Exactly. So I guess we could start with what is trauma. Yeah. So just for my clients, I like to tell people that trauma is anything that has happened in your life, past or present, that still causes a negative emotional response to this day. And you can find cues for this and anything that negatively affects the way that you see yourself, the way that you see others, the way that you see the world around you. You don't just have insecurities for no reason. You know, you don't just have fears for no reason. It all starts somewhere. There's a root to all of it. Yeah. And I, 
I've been thinking a lot lately because I, I feel I hear this a lot, big T, little T trauma. Yeah, right. And I've mentioned this on the podcast though before where parts of me don't really like that. I do not use and, big T, little T. I'm okay. Glad. Yeah, I don't either because like I think I've, I've mentioned, I don't remember who I was talking to about it before, but it it is, it's this realization that it doesn't, I don't feel like there's a, there's a way to be able to classify, oh, that's a big T. Oh, that's a little T because it invalidates people that have less recognized trauma. Exactly. Exactly. And because I work with the brain and the same part of the brain, the affective system, um, which is housed in the limbic area, deep inside the middle of the brain, the affective system is affected in trauma, no matter what the event was. And so if the brain's response is the same and it affects the person the same, regardless of who you are or what it was, then, I mean, we can't make it better or worse or bigger or smaller for Mm -hmm. people. Right. And especially doing my own inner work, I can totally see that things that have been stuck in my memory to another person might be like, why was that a big deal to you? Oh, but yeah. for my system, it was. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so again, there's no way to label that as, well, that's technically a little T. <laughs> right. Like, well, can't really say that. Like you said, when you're looking at the brain, it doesn't really matter what you say. It's just, it's there. It's lighting up. <laughs> yeah. And it's happened and it's been impactful. Yeah. This will be a sneak peek for the brain part of what we talk about today, but um, I have so many people that I do EEGs on that think that they have like obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD or something. And then the trauma neuromarker zone is lighting up on the back right of their brain. And I asked them, you know, around six or seven, did anything happen or something that kind of made your affective system really hot and made it kind of want to protect itself all the time and people will just totally start isolating like oh well yeah i guess my parents did divorce anything that affected me that much or well we had a house fire but like my cat was okay and that's all i really cared about at the time so it's like things that they didn't even realize were traumatic but you know subconsciously the brain is still very upset about it yes yeah that's exactly right and I think that's the hard part about where we're at currently in our society, would you say, is there's not really a great way yet to fully understand, and maybe there is, and you can tell me, but like, feel like to fully understand and to tease out like what is from trauma and like also what is maybe uh, genetic, biological? Yeah. Does that? Definitely. You can look at family history you can look at, you know, brains of family members, um, and you can look at clients self-report and kind of see if there's more emotionally related symptoms as opposed to, I don't know, academic dysfunction or something like that. Um, then you can kind of trace a trail back into some sort of emotional stressor with trauma. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't necessarily have a way of identifying where it came from. But what I love about like the brain science that we do is the fact that it's happening is important. And the fact that we can do something about it and provide relief for symptoms is even more important. So I try to help provide clients relief as much as I can about the whys, but we can't really answer the whys. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. 
And so in regards to what is trauma, do we want to get into, because I know it's like listed in the DSM, right? And there's criteria Mm -hmm. in that way. And there's symptoms of trauma and cover-up disorders. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about what the like diagnostic classification for trauma is, because I like to start with that. And I like to show people how it's so much more than that. Um, So to be diagnosed with trauma uh, by a mental health specialist, um, it says that you have have to have some sort of exposure to actual or threatened death or serious injury, sexual violence, um, or have uh, witnessed it. And so you have to directly experience it or experience it vicariously, which means you witness it or you heard that it happened to someone. And then there has to be some sort of response that you have traumatic experience that impairs your social and occupational functioning. And so there might be avoidance is the primary symptom of trauma. So um, choosing not to go down certain streets or choosing not to be around certain people or avoiding certain smells or perfumes or colors or something like that. Um, There's a hypervigilance. There's a physiological response of jumpiness or feeling on edge or um, insomnia. And then there's an emotional response of just kind of feeling guilty or ashamed or bad or blame yourself or other people for what happened. Um, And so, um, but generally speaking, you know, if a clinician interviews a client and the client has not experienced actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence, um, then there's a chance that person won't be able to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which really misses the mark because those are not the only traumatic events that can happen in a person's life. Right. Exactly. So let's think about emotional abuse. You know, it's not death or sexual violence or serious injury, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely serious internal injury, attachment issues, right? Attachment issues. I think about, you know, what we've been calling it's not even in the DSM yet, but I feel like it will be at some point, but you know, complex trauma in the sense of, like you mentioned, like attachment, emotional, relational, you know, things that someone experiences over the course of their childhood and adolescence, that's not just a single event. It could be things that just happen continuously at various points developmentally for them and in their relationships with their caregivers, siblings, family, peers, teachers, all of the stuff. Right. And I do not feel like that's clearly represented yet Mm -hmm. in the DSM. Yeah. And it really takes away from like a person who seems rather functional um, from having that validation. Like think about someone who's a bank manager making $75,000 a year with a husband and kids at home. And she comes in for therapy and she's telling you her history and her parents got divorced when she was five. And she had her first boyfriend that she was in love with at 14 years old, cheat on her for her with, for her best friend and leave her. And uh, then her dog died shortly after that. And um, then she had an embarrassing experience where she was at a dance competition and her skirt fell off or something like that. And then all of a sudden now, you know, she's in this marriage and she's just like having trouble ever experiencing happiness. And, uh, she finds that she's just really paranoid that her husband is going to leave her. And 
you know, we trace it back and it's like, she's got all of these trust issues and this disturbed sense of self from embarrassment and different humiliating things and not having properly attached to her parents and feeling left by one of her parents that moved out. You know, that is trauma. You know, I've mm-hmm. added the dog dying in there and I was like, oh man, I had a death in there that actually counts <laughs> as trauma. But like, even if the dog didn't die, all of those other things for that person are traumatic. And so really like, it sounds you know, too good to be true, or it sounds like an overgeneralization for me to say that the majority of people are walking around with trauma. But, uh, you know, if I were to ever use an everyone statement, even as a counselor, which we usually don't like to do, Mm -hmm. I I would probably sponsor the argument that everyone has trauma, because this is a really, really difficult world. And I have not met a single person in my entire life, and definitely not in my entire practice, that I can't trace symptoms back to something that happened or a complex, like Mm -hmm. you said, collection of things that happened in their lives, which is why diagnostically as a clinician, if you're a clinician listening to this, um, I'm really, really weary about the things that I diagnose for my clients too. I do not diagnose personality disorders Mm -hmm. because personality disorders have tons of roots in trauma. Yeah. And that disturbance happened for a reason. I look at it now from an IFS perspective of what we would call protector parts where, or I think like what you've mentioned before, cover up disorders where basically, you know, we've gone through something, something traumatic. We have these wounds, we're stuck in the past and these protector parts then come forward that try to manage, soothe, uh, numb, distract from those wounds right right? Mm -hmm. and so for some people they can be really extreme than maybe for others and so I I agree with what you're saying about the personality disorders I kind of view it all more so in terms of wounds and protectors yeah and it's yeah and childhood behavior disorders similar thing mm -hmm. a lot of people think that they're precursors to personality disorders in adulthood um but yeah those wounds, there's a compensation for it. There's actually, um, I think Bessel van der Kolk in The Body Keeps a Score, he's got a quote where he talks about trauma and overcompensation. He says, traumatized people are able to do for other people like they haven't been done for themselves with mm-hmm. the sweetness and compassion, but it often doesn't come back to them as self-satisfaction because they still feel so damaged inside that they make up for how bad they are by doing good. Yeah, And so they can't even reap the benefits from it because it just puts them back in neutral. They feel so bad or they feel so shameful or they still feel so wounded that doing all that good or sacrificing so much for people and being people pleaser just puts them back at zero. It doesn't right. fill their tank at all. It just like patches all the holes of it. And so it's a really trauma is a really exhausting disorder and people are still expected to work and parent and, you know, take care of themselves and like deny the addictive compulsions that they might have or the overeating tendencies or whatever else to compensate for it. It's, I mean, it's a bear. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Those parts are working hard to try and survive and they do a wonderful job of keeping someone a lot of times alive and resilient. But then, like you said, over time though, it's just so exhausting and they're not actively healing anything within. Exactly. Anything else you want to add in regards to what is trauma? 
Yeah, I I want to add when we were talking about those cover up disorders, I want to add that, you know, if you know somebody who struggles with non-suicidal self-injury or an eating disorder or a substance use disorder or a somatic symptom disorder, uh, which basically is, is like illness, anxiety, or like a hyper awareness of what's going on in the body. And, you know, this aches or this something feels wrong or my heart's beating too much or my hair's not growing. What's wrong with me? Um, those are usually cover-ups for trauma too. Non-suicidal self-injury um, is actually usually a traumatized person's way of re-injuring the self and actually having control over the healing of it. So you feel so much internal pain that you congruently match the pain on the outside, and then you're your own nurse for that wound. Mm-hmm. Um, and non-suicidal self-injury does not have to just be traditional, like what you would think about cutting. I mean, it can be burning. It could be someone who seeks to get a lot of tattoos. Um, it could be someone who's in a boxing or fighting kind of hobby who enjoys kind of getting hit around or hitting others. It's like getting to live out that defense. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And it's not right or wrong. It just is like the response. And we just become aware of how trauma has affected us and what our compensatory responses are. And then we can channel those compensatory responses into something that's healthier. You know, someone who struggles with an eating disorder usually does wonderfully at like transitioning that into healthy macro tracking and intermittent fasting and weight training and ends up becoming like a personal trainer or a health coach or something. Uh, because of that testimony, you don't want to take somebody's compensatory behavior and then try to make them heal and become totally opposite and ditch that at all. It's like, you know, turn that into passion and something positive. Yeah. And And then we, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, and that's another thing that I love about like IFS work is when someone you're encouraging and guiding someone to connect with, let's say that part of them that is engaging in the eating disorder behavior. When you ask them to ask the part, like, what would you rather like to be doing within me? then the part will respond with sometimes it is something complete opposite. And then other times it could be utilizing the resources in which they've kind of been gaining as a protective mechanism, but for a beneficial in a beneficial way, like you said, maybe there's now this part within someone that once the wounds are addressed and, and turn towards with compassion that this part eventually then, like you said, maybe utilizes its resources towards, I want to be a personal trainer for someone, but having it be led in what we call a self-led way with that compassion and care and clarity and courage, as opposed to from a burden place that's very Mm -hmm. manager or firefighter driven. So yeah, Yeah. I I do think it, it can we need to look at these things within ourselves as they have resources there. I really believe that. And I know that like they have resources there, like within us yeah. from these parts that have been through trauma and have had to take on these other roles in order to protect us right. from feeling maybe that overwhelm of, of those wounds. And we need to turn towards them with that curiosity. Right. Man, what you do is just so warm and inviting. It just, every time you talk about IFS, like I even feel just a little bit calmer and more healed. Just like, yeah, oh. yes, I want to have so much compassion for myself. And like, 
use all of these resources I have inside of me. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Beautiful way of looking at ourselves. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we need to give ourselves just as much compassion. So let's say if someone experiences trauma, like let's say they are in a car accident, let's say that was a one-time thing. Would someone's brain look differently? Would it light up differently if there's that person? And then there's someone that experienced what we call like complex trauma, meaning like many instances throughout their childhood and adolescence. Does the brain look differently or does it look pretty similar? It's a really good question. You know, there are so many environmental factors that come to play. Let's say during the car accident that you were in the car alone, that's going to be a very different trauma response, whether you have complex trauma or not, um, compared to if you had a passenger or if you had people with you. And that could go either way. If you had people with you and they got injured, that increases the complexity of that trauma. Right. If you had people with you and everybody was safe and you immediately had people to kind of like breathe with and like talk about how crazy that was, you know, trauma that's experienced with another person or when a person has a place to call home. Um, this is also body keeps score and nugget, um, but usually doesn't end up in trauma because it got to be processed. Um, and it got to be shared in a way. It's usually yeah. the isolating impact that trauma has um, that turns a person inward and just takes away all of the sense of safety in that individual. Um, but someone who has complex trauma, who hasn't healed from that trauma, uh, who might have a like, bad things always happen to me, or the world is bad, or it's not safe, or people are out to get me, or uh, I don't deserve love or something like that. This would just be another thing. And it would just perpetuate the cycles of that maladaptive thinking. Um, someone who hasn't had it at all, you might think that I, I'm going to say that it would be a little bit easier for that person. But first time trauma oftentimes can be even more alarming because a person has otherwise believed that they were safe and they got to kind of operate in their default mode, which we'll talk about when we do brain stuff. Um, but that generally they didn't have to think about whether they were going to be in danger or death or something like that. And all of a sudden, all of this awareness that was supposed to be kind of subconscious bodyguarding becomes conscious and you have to maintain all of your adult responsibilities. And now consider the fact that you could die on the road anytime. What's going to happen to you after you die? The fact that you almost lost your family, all the things that you need to clean up in your life because you realize that life is so short and like you look at your job differently because, you know, whoa, everything just kind of overwhelms. Whereas a person with complex trauma, there's a desensitization. So this is kind of a paradoxical effect, but there's a desensitization that happens when someone just expects things to go wrong, that another car accident would just be, I said icing on the cake, but it would just be another example. And that person is so used to, and in fact, expects things not to be safe or healthy. Um, that is just par for the course. It still feels terrible and it still adds to things, but you know, messy is messy. Yeah. That makes, yeah. Thank you for using those examples. Cause that does make a lot of sense. And I, I feel like when I was coming up with that question, it was like parts of me were like, this is such a complicated answer. <laughs> 
I'm sure there's yeah. not just like a, a right, like, oh yes, it's always this way. It's always that way. Right. Cause just all the mm. things you just mentioned about just even the situation with the car accident, it's like, well, were there people on the car? Did those people get hurt? How was the other person's life before that car? accident? <laughs> you know, and that well, all and did that makes person's sense. Parents hug and kiss them. Because if someone gets in a car accident, let's say two people with complex trauma each get in a car accident. One person has parents who love them and hugged and kissed them. And the other person had parents that emotionally rejected them and worked all the time. Then that would be worse off for the person with the emotional rejection because the resilience wouldn't be as high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Makes so much sense. So let's get into then the brain. Yeah. Specifically and trauma. For sure. Okay. So There are several ways that I could talk about this, Um, but the first thing that I want to say is when trauma occurs, no matter what it is, and hopefully now you have a broader view of what trauma is, it is a mind-body disconnection, and your mind and your body are very, very connected. I know I'm crunchy, but this is just true. Your brain actually connects to the rest of the organs in your body via one nerve one long, long, long nerve. If you want to go on Google and type in Vegas, V-A-G-U-S nerve, um, you'll be able to see it. It's beautiful. Um, So it's one nerve that attaches your brain to your eyes and your face and your lips and your throat and your chest, your heart and your um, stomach and your um, digestion organs and then your reproductive organs. Um, And so what happens in your brain then in turn communicates to your body in a congruent way. So if you experience a breakup with someone, someone breaks up with you, you might experience heartache. If you find out someone died, you might feel sick to your stomach. And so you're supposed to have visceral responses and trauma. There's a mind body disconnection. So even the most horrific of news um, might not physiologically disturb a person because there's desensitization. And so we need to restore the mind-body connection. And there are actually vasovagal exercises um, there. You can YouTube them. There's a couple of people that look like yoga instructors. And I think some of them are who do vasovagal exercises or vagus nerve exercises or stimulation where you can like turn your head at a certain angle and then make your eyes strain the very, very opposite direction um, until you get a deep sigh or a yawn. And then when you do, it can take up to three minutes. And then when you do, you turn your head to the other side, put your eyes to the opposite direction of your head, strain, 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 hold, hold, hold until you get a deep sigh or yawn. And that will reset your vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are other exercises that you can do. Um, But it's, it's fascinating. And it also is why we therapists are always telling you uh, to use affirmations and gratitude and to think positively because what you believe really turns into how you feel. And um, so it's important to make sure that you express gratitude for the family that you have or that you still have a job or, you know, a tornado could blow through your house, but you use at least reasoning. So at least the dog didn't die. You know, at least we, our car didn't get blown away. At least we had that savings account affects your entire system. And, um, you know, reversely, there's more efferent nerves that go from your heart to your brain than from your brain to your heart. And the heart is an organ that is not just for pumping blood and for keeping you alive. Um, your heart can help to determine your emotional mood state, 
your sense of well-being, your trust mm -hmm. in your environment, your sense of calm. And so you can, the only way you can really access your heart is through your autonomic nervous system, which is your automatic nervous system, um, composed of two parts, sympathetic, fight or flight, activate, um, and parasympathetic, uh, which is rest and digest. And um, so breathing, anything, basically think of the autonomic nervous system this way. Anything that you don't have to think about to function is part of your autonomic nervous system. Mm. You blink, you breathe, your temperature regulates, your blood pressure flows, um, your heart beats, your nails grow, your skin grows, your hair grows, etc. Um, and so when you have trauma, your autonomic nervous system tends toward a sympathetic response more than a parasympathetic response. So that fight or flight and that activate and so that produces way more stress on the body um, and it increases your heart rate and it increases your respiration pace um, and it uh, limits your digestion because when you're trying to stay alive and survive, the last thing your body is thinking about is whether you're going to digest your food or whether you're going to detoxify from the last meal that you ate or the thing that you breathed in when you were at that store. Um, so it really messes up your system. And so if you can take over your breathing, which I'm so excited that God has given us the ability to um, take over our breathing that automatically keeps us alive. We don't have to tell our lungs to inhale and exhale and inhale and exhale as we're doing everything in life. But if we want to, we can pause and just for two minutes, you can use 10 fingers and you can count up one, two, three, four, five, exhale, five, four, three, two, one. And if you do that on 10 fingers, you'll actually reset the physiology of your heart and your heart will use those efferent nerves to communicate to your brain that everything is actually cool down here. I don't, I don't, can't really explain it, but we're breathing normally. Our blood's flowing great. Or we're starting to digest again. So false alarm, you're good brain. And if you do that enough throughout the day, um, then you'll increase what's called your heart coherence. And we can actually measure that. That's one of the interventions that we use with people with traumas, heart rate variability, we call it. Yeah. And that's something that I, I recently found this sounds part of me right now was like, this is going to sound ridiculous what you're about to say, but I like found it in my backpack. I had <laughs> bought the, uh, the heart math Institute. Yeah. The inner yeah. balance monitor. Oh yeah. I bought that like eight years ago Oh yes. <laughs> and I've been using it on and off for those years. And I hadn't used it in a very long time. But the other day, I just like felt this intuition. I was like, look in your backpack. And I found it. It was in there. And it's the one that like can clip on your ear. And yeah. then it like latches here. And then like I have the app on my phone. And I just sat here in my office for like five minutes and like did the guided breathing, which like as you're saying, it helps get what they call like this heart coherence and yeah. helping your heart rate variability increase so that your nervous system feels safer, feels yeah. calmer. And I love that it gives like in the moment biofeedback where you're like looking at the screen and it's like, you're in the green, you're in the green. And then it's so interesting. Cause like if my mind starts wandering, yes, it'll be like yellow mm -hmm. <laughs> or red because then yeah. my breathing gets off pace again. And maybe I'm thinking about something that's stressful right. or that parts of me are worried about. I think things like that. 
Yeah. And they use the the green, blue, and red system for like the color identification. And at the top, there's also that live monitor of your heart coherence. And you can see this jaggedy line that makes really no sense, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're just breathing normally or just thinking about stuff or especially thinking about things that stress you out. And as soon as you do that rhythmic breathing with that little like kind of flower looking Mm -hmm. um, round circle that goes in and out, you inhale and exhale with all of a sudden you see these nice sine waves that are rhythmic and even like nice little mountains and Mm -hmm. um, just helps you to feel calmer. And you're like, I did that. And so that instills like the sense of control too. Like trauma is a very uncontrollable disorder. And we definitely can't control that people hurt us or didn't make us feel safe or didn't help us to feel as loved as we should have felt, you know? And now all of a sudden I'm actually in control of my healing, just like I'm in control about running that blade over my skin, but I'm in control over breathing and making that jaggedy line turn into a nice sine wave. So um, Mm -hmm. it's just another way you can transfer that. Um, and still achieve the same peace and calm about it. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you whipped that out. Use it. Keep using it. <laughs> yes. So good. Yes. Yeah. So what do we say? We said the vagus nerve is messed up. We said the autonomic nervous system, which is the automatic nervous system, uh, tends toward a sympathetic response, fight or flight response. Breathing can help you. Gosh, there's so many things that happen. Let's talk about your brain for a second. So yeah. uh, three main networks in your brain. Um, there's several, several, several networks in your brain. Um, but these three are connected in terms of, um, just how you live and how you respond. And so we've got, we're going to talk about your default mode network, your salience network, and your central executive network or your executive control network. Um, and so you have your default mode. So we're going to use the analogy of someone driving in the car. So you're just driving, whatever, mindless, things are passing you by, you're in default mode, your brain's kind of idling. Um, And then all of a sudden, your salience network kicks in because a squirrel runs in front of the car and you kind of have that like, do I act or do I not act? And then um, once your brain decides whether or not it was a relevant response or the squirrel ran away, um, you go back into default mode. Um, if it was nothing and if if it ran away, um, if it's still staying there, or if it's like a person standing in front of your car, now your executive control network has to kick on. And now you have to actually, um, act on those sensory cues and you have to use cognition and decision-making in order to, um, make sure that the problem is solved. And then once the problem is solved, you go back into the default mode network. Mm. Um, so the salience network is kind of like the bridge between the default mode and central executive or the, the executive control either way. Um, so you're in the default mode and then your salience network is like, hey, this might be relevant. So the it's another way of thinking of salience as relevance. Um, and then if it is relevant, it cues you into central executive where you're acting and reacting. Um, and if it's not, you go back, the salience network permits you to go back into default mode. Well, I say all that to say that in the case of trauma, your default mode network, Ruth Lanius and uh, Turpo found this, that your default mode network gets disturbed um, and trauma. And so your brain's ability to idle, to just kind of exist normally, um, doesn't seem to happen. You're kind of always in this like hypervigilant, 
response mm-hmm. where it's like, do I act? Do I not? Was that, what was that? What was that? Which is why um, ADHD symptoms can come about and OCD. We'll talk about both uh, when you have unresolved trauma, because of course your brain can't focus and can't concentrate when it's trying to make sure that that thing never happens again, or tries right. to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Because who cares about learning something new or remembering that person's name or, you know, remembering to pick that up at the store because that person looked at me weird. And the last person, mm. somebody, last time somebody looked at me weird, this happened or et cetera, or you're just so underslept from it all that yeah. that can do it too. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up, the connection that we can see with ADHD and OCD and trauma, because I do feel like, again, that's something that parts of me are really interested in and curious about because it is kind of that, I don't know, a hundred years from now, I hope that we do have this like amazing way to just look at ourselves and to see, oh, this is why this happened. (laughs) Again, answering those whys with with some clarity. Uh, but, But even like you said in the beginning, even if we can't fully understand the why yet, it's still helpful to know that there can be this, these connections with something like trauma that then can activate parts within us that look like ADHD, that activate parts that look like OCD. And it's like, once we have that clarity of what's inside of us, then again, we can turn towards it with that curiosity yeah, to maybe better understand it in whatever way we can that's available to us within, but then to also go about it in terms of looking at ways to help the system feel heard and understood and safe. Exactly. Yeah. And it's super validating to go from thinking that you have something you're going to have forever to, oh, this is just an injury and prognostically, you know, this can be healed from rather quickly. Yeah. 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 That is empowering. Yeah. And the OCD makes sense. We talked about ADHD being like, uh, it takes your attention away when you're trying to keep yourself safe. I mean, an OCD, you just, you ruminate about things, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't let something go, you know, and your brain is just really fixated on uh, trying to make sure that you don't get hurt again, Mm -hmm. or trying to make sure that someone really loves you and trying to look for evidence of that and uh, just compulsively eating or shopping or spending or asking questions or checking phones or whatever it might be as a result. But I mean, that that, that gets a trust issue. OCD does have a, a genetic root as well, but um, it also has a, an environmental root. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. They looked at uh, brain scans uh, in that Turpo and Lanius study in 2020. They looked at brain scans of people who were healthy controls, no reports of trauma, reported feeling fine. Um, And at rest, the part of their brains that uh, were aware of who they are and where they are in time and place and uh, what they like and um, what they know and their emotional regulation and everything is just kind of online back to fronts communicating in the brain left to right is communicating in the brain um, but then under a threat those healthy controls everything shuts down except the amygdala on that scan so the fight or flight like it's the emotion-based safety seeking survival mm-hmm. uh, what do i do with this situation just act um, but reversely this is very interesting 
people with post-traumatic stress disorder had the same scans and at rest, instead of having everything online, the posterior cingulate cortex was the only thing that was faintly online. And that is where I am in time and place and who am I? So fixation on where I am in time and place and who am I, you know, as a result of the things that have happened in my life. However, when people with post-traumatic stress disorder are under a threat, whereas the healthy subjects had the amygdala light up and nothing else, people with trauma, their brain lit up almost identically to a healthy person at rest. And so people with trauma, yes. And we have an image of this. Uh, I think it's on my right mind wellness center. I know it's on my right mind wellness center social media. I made a little video about it, but uh, it's fascinating because it makes a lot of sense. People it's essentially saying people with trauma feel alive during threat and during chaos because their brain is so fixated on the fact that it could happen again, that when it is actually happening again, they're like, Oh yeah, I expected this, or this Mm. is what I was preparing for. This is why you see people with trauma oftentimes going into uh, just survival crisis-based work. You know, you see mm-hmm. a lot of ambulance workers and hospital workers and even mental health counselors and crisis workers uh, who have to do these really tough jobs, but they were great under pressure right. because they actually feel aimless and lost and just stuck inside themselves if they're not constantly busy or in crisis. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense, right? Because again, if, if someone's constantly blended with this activation within, but they're just hanging out at home and everything's chill, but those parts, that activation within them still there. So then that's going to cause more distress Mm -hmm. than if they are in a stressful situation and that energy is able to then be used. Yes. That makes, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That makes so much sense. We, uh, so, you know, I scan brains, I use the EEG which is electroencephalogram, electrical, electroencephalo of the brain, gram picture. So it's an electrical picture of the brain, non-invasive. It doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't shock you or anything. We're just able to see 19 different sites on the brain and how your neurons are firing at what speed and what power and what patterns. And there are morphologies in these oscillations of brain waves that we can see that communicate to us neuromarkings for um, symptoms like of trauma. So one of the neuromarkings that we see uh, that often indicates trauma is in the visual cortex in the very, very back of your head. So if you were to touch your neck and then take your finger and just go a couple inches higher than your neck, uh, you would find a little bone on the back of your head. And this is called your inion. That's where your skull ends. And then if you go just about another inch above that, uh, the span there, the little like three or four inch span there um, is the occipital cortex, cortex, and that's your visual cortex. And so even though your eyes are in the front of your head and the muscles that regulate your eyes are in the front of your head, the part of your brain that controls your vision is actually in the back of your head. Um, And this is the the first sense that we use in order to take in our environment. People with trauma oftentimes become more aroused on the EEG when their eyes are closed because we've shut off one of their best safety sensors in their vision. So we see what happens is we see these Nike checkmark looking waves that come up really distinctly. If it's eyes open, we call it lambda. If it's eyes closed, we call it lambdoid. And it's right there in the occipital cortex in the visual cortex area. And you see these Nike checks in the back of the head 
is constantly communicating to the eyes. Hey, check, check that out. What was that? Check that Mm. out, check that out. And so we see Lambda or Lambdoid content and people with ADHD who just are looking around all the time and they're inattentive. Um, But a lot of the times it points us to, you know, your brain isn't just sitting there and it happens when the eyes close. And so the brain knows when the eyes are closed, that there's no visual input. And yet it's so the network is so disturbed that the visual cortex of the brain is still sending signals to the eyes that they should be aware of what's going on, which we know that the eyes are closed. So there's no need to send that signal, but the visual cortex is just like, just check that, check that, check that, try to see that, try to see that. Hmm. Which is why closing your eyes. And that's why sleeping is difficult for people with trauma. Right. Um, When you close your eyes, your brain is like Mm. open, 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 open. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, that makes sense. And I also think about there was a documentary where they were doing sound therapy with people and they invited them to close their eyes. And for certain people, instead of going into the parasympathetic state, it would like their nervous system would go into sympathetic. Oh, yeah. And so they were listening. So like they're they're hearing was kind of taken away because they're listening to like this soothing music and then they put an eye mask over their eyes to block out their vision and it was so interesting to see that that as they were measuring at the same time their biofeedback that yeah there were certain people that instead of relaxing Mm -hmm. when they were about to shift or I think what it was is like they shifted into that relaxation state of parasympathetic and then it spiked Mm. into sympathetic yeah kind of like again this kind of like what I'm hearing you say is someone who's experienced trauma that hasn't been processed that the system is like oh you're relaxing oh wait no that's not okay right (laughs) you know yep that's exactly right Yep. And the visual cortex in the back of the head, um, the way that the dipoles are, the way that uh, we receive signal about brain waves from the sensors in the back of the head, um, we can also see neuromarkings for trauma-based anxiety in the back of the head too, um, because the affective system projects onto the visual cortex. And so if you've got a hot affective is with an A, that's just your emotional regulation system there, that limbic area. Um, but I mean, you also have frontal emotional regulation with your interior cingulate, which does get disturbed too. Um, but I digress. The visual cortex is able to pick up a hot affective system that communicates to us that something is off, uh, with that system. And, uh, even, even more interestingly, we also see this temporal parietal alpha, these oscillations between eight and 12 Hertz, um, that happen around the back, right of the head, temporal, right, temporal parietal area. And this is right around the area of the brain that, um, understands the tones and intentions of other people and is aware of um, how I'm impacting someone socially with my own behavior and my own tones and facial expressions that come from the front right, Um, my ability to trust other people, my ability to feel socially comfortable as opposed to socially anxious. Um, And so especially people who have interpersonal trauma 
uh, that just that just gets wrecked. And one of the most important things to think about the brain, if you have learned ever in your life that there's right brain, left brain, and that left brain is logical and right brain is emotional, I don't want you to totally throw that out um, because there are more um, logic and reason based language-based things on the left and more creative emotion, affective, tonal, prosodic um, regions on the right. However, we can't make a black and white statement about the brain like that, but I will tell you, I'm going to give you permission to replace that old black and white statement with a new black and white statement about the brain. So here it is. It is that you cannot emotionally react at the same time as you cognitively react or as you logically react. And when you have trauma, we see the part of your brain that is responsible for emotional reactivity lighting up and heating up pretty much all the time because your brain doesn't feel safe because it thinks it's happening over and over. And so people with trauma are less likely to make good decisions. And so decisions about relationships and decisions about uh, leaving a job or taking a settling for a job or even decisions about moving away or staying in a toxic relationships, whatever. Um, they're just, those decisions are usually based on emotion. And because it's, it's so tricky because that area of the brain causes social blindness when there's too much alpha back there. And so a person has no idea how their behavior is impacting others, which also results in limited insight for that person that they're part of the problem because they've been so victimized in a very real way that now if they're making decisions that are harmful or if they're making decisions that aren't wise, trying to produce insight in them that they're the ones, you know, I had someone that said um, they got in a fight recently and super unresolved trauma. And I asked what happened and um, they said that they went up to a person and they called them all sorts of names because they overheard them slandering a certain people group and they didn't think that was right. And then all of a sudden the person punched them in the face and how ridiculous that person was for punching them in the face. Mm. And I pointed out that they you know, called that person all sorts of names and confronted that person. And it was very matter of fact, just, well, yes, you know, that person deserved it. They were acting mm. like, a terrible, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting that how, you know, what we experience, how it can shape and impact our ability to see the world. It's it's I almost view it as like we're wearing different lenses over yeah. our eyes based on what we've gone through and how mm-hmm. we've been able to process things. And it is it's interesting when you invite someone to remove or like to just kind of set aside one of those lenses. Yeah. That can be very, it can be threatening. I feel like sometimes, especially if it's one of those lenses is coming from again, like a protector part. Yeah. That is like, well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what are you doing here? Like, this is what I meant to do. This is how I need to do it. And so, yeah, that example that you just gave of that person, it sounds like for them, that lens of that part that was like, no, I overheard this person saying those things and therefore they deserve or they need to hear about it in this way Mm -hmm. that for them in that part, it might need to be there for whatever reason, you know, for them in the past in some way, but in the present and in that scenario, it didn't sound like it had a very beneficial impact. 
Well, and we tend to think that other people think like we think, like you right. said, if people are wearing different lenses. We automatically, all of us, this is universal, assume then we can correct it, but we immediately assume that another person sees through the same lens that we do. Mm-hmm. And then we have to correct ourselves and tell ourselves that they've been through different things. They come from a different culture. You know, this specific client um, is someone who grew up more on the East coast where it's very, very normal to curse at people. And, you know, you could even talk to your friends and brothers and whatever this way. And it's just kind of like, Hey, quit being a whatever. And yeah. you're this and you're that. And so, you know, and kind of more the East and or the Midwest and Southern mm-hmm. States, we don't appreciate that as much. We consider that more offensive. So there's some cultural right. stuff. That was his logic. I mean, it just skewed, skewed logic, but very yeah. real for him. Yeah. So, makes sense. Yeah. Do we want to get into some interventions? Yeah, let's talk about what we can do about this because yeah. there's so much we can do about it. Um, so we talked about the brain. So insight and psychoeducation is always a really good place to start. So if you're listening to this and you know anybody that uh, would like to see their brain or you'd like to see your brain, just text me. I'll give you my phone number. I'm going to give it to you now if you need something to write with or if you're typing on your phone. And it's 513-667-2165. I do better with text. I can respond to it better. I and I'll put that in the show notes too. Okay, so sweet. people can see that. Yeah. So we can scan the brain and it can be really validating because I can show you different ways that your brain is misfiring or different networks aren't communicating, different neurons aren't firing the way they need to in order for your brain to fire optimally. Um, and beyond that, then we can use what's called EEG biofeedback or neurofeedback, and we can train your neurons with a simple video game task not to fire like that anymore. So the video game, your brain plays this video game, and the the game only works or the, the Pac-Man only moves or whatever game you're playing um, if your brain waves are firing a specific way that we've set on the computer. Um, and if your brain waves fire that way, then Pac-Man moves and your brain is very fast, 268 miles an hour sometimes. I mean, there's it's crazy. Um, and um, so if it moves, your brain realizes that it fired that way. So it continues to fire that way to make the guy move. And then it self-evaluates because it's designed for optimization. And it says, oh, wait, well, how do I feel now that I fired like this to win this game? I actually feel calmer and I could focus better on that game. And I don't feel as hypervigilant. I think I'm going to keep firing this way. And so then the brain takes it upon itself to continue firing in the way that you taught it to just to win the game. And that's why it's permanent um, and long-term. It's intensive. You, It's just like learning a language. You have to do it a few times a week for four to six months, usually, um, to get the long-term effects. But then once you do, you really only need tune-ups or none at all uh, because your brain really enjoyed changing up its speed. So neurofeedback is one way. Talked about heart rate variability training. If you don't have $200 to spend on an inner balance monitor, which is what the non-sale price usually is, we do sell that on Right Mind Wellness Center's website um, or HeartMath sells it too on their website directly. Um, Then you can go to YouTube and type in HRV breathing. And if you do that, you will see uh, videos that are just like the app that... um, Natalie was sharing uh, where this kind of like 
image will go in and out and you kind of breathe with this image growing and shrinking. And you do that so many times until you feel calm. You can also count and do the finger method and that will increase your heart rate variability as well, which I didn't specify the science behind heart rate variability. Um, but heart rate variability is actually a measure of the milliseconds and the activity between each heartbeat that gives us an indication of how the autonomic nervous system is doing. And so if there is variability between each heart beat, if that is higher, if, if the time between each heartbeat looks different, then you are more coherent, heart coherent, and you are healthier. If the time between each heartbeat is um, smaller than, which means your heart is beating faster, right? Because there's less time between each heartbeat, then you are too physiologically aroused to have a calm presentation. So I do some more education about the science of HRV and some of my trainings on Heisel and Associates too, but I'm happy to even go into that for anybody who's interested. But heart rate variability, we talked about the vasovagal toning. Uh, so there are different vagus nerve exercises that we can do. And of course, education about the vagus nerve and someone's awareness, you know, you can even do guided imagery and you can even do some mindfulness and grounding with the fact that there's a brain sitting inside your head, you know, behind that skin and inside that hard thing on your head, there's actually an organ and it's doing all sorts of stuff. And you can even trace your hands and travel um, down where the vagus nerve goes and to really connect with yourself that way. I use um, uh, guided um, re response training with my clients where um, I'll have them close their eyes and I just have them sense warmth or pressure or uh, heaviness or any sort of tingling sensation in the different areas. So I'll have them close their eyes and I'll say, tell me when you can feel your right elbow. Okay, now tell me when you can feel your left kneecap. Okay, tell me when you can feel your left ear lobe, et cetera, and just kind of increase that mind-body connection. Um, we Yoga is incredible for increasing the mind-body connection um, and restoring a person's sense of calm when impacted by trauma. Acupressure tapping um, and Qijong are also strongly advocated for by Bessel van der Kolk. So there are different uh, pressure points that you can tap all over your body and your hand, outside of your hand, in between um, your metaphalanx, I think it's called, on your hand, um, all the way up to your face and cheeks and forehead and chest. Um, and then Qijong includes this, um, you take your hands and you start to create an energetic ball in front of you. And so your hands are moving, kind of creating this sphere in front of you. And you can start to feel this power in your hands. And it's, it's crazy because you actually can, as you're increasing the size of this ball and you're shrinking the size of this ball, and now you're making it spin at a 45 degree angle. And now you threw it to another person and they caught it. Um, and so that can be really good. Um, EMDR yeah. uses bilateral stimulation. Um, and so that is right brain communicates to left body, uh, left brain communicates to right body. And so I use the um, tapping, bilateral tapping in my practice. I am not um, informed or certified or trained in EMDR. I just use um, brain tapping really um, to activate both. So I have People cross their hands like a butterfly on their chest and the right brain tells the left hand to tap the right underneath the clavicle part of the chest and the left brain tells the right hand to tap the left 
uh, underneath the clavicle, low muscular spot on the chest, and the person's eyes are closed, and I have them tell me uh, the traumatic event, and then they reprocess that. Um, so EMDR uses that, but they use an eight-phase model um, where they'll go into um, container storage and um, you have protectors and you've got different people that you have to help support you um, in your imagery through that. It's a wonderful intervention. So many people are trained and certified in it and they're amazing. Psychotropic medications, of course, have been used to try to treat trauma. Vessel uh, van der Kolk found some stuff with Prozac and trauma, um, although there are people who in the placebo group who also reported um, improvement, but the Prozac people reported improvement longer term, so there was some validity with that. Um, yeah. And then from a cognitive perspective, with children and adolescents, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, the workbook is really good. And for adults, the cognitive processing therapy workbook is really good just for more kind of logically impacted mm-hmm. people with trauma. Yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff you just listed. And I know. <laughs> there's more I have. Even I know there's, there's more. And I want to say, you know, yes, of course, to EMDR, there's a lot of research on that and cognitive processing therapy. And, you know, there's more and more stuff coming out too about internal family systems therapy as well. And there's a funny story actually about Bessel van der Kolk and an IFS. I, there's a woman that I interviewed who got to go to a Bessel van der Kolk in-person training like years and years and years ago. And, and she hadn't heard about IFS yet, but he was, you know, becoming friends with Dick Schwartz who invented IFS. And, and she told me the story. She said, Bessel said something in the training of like, you know who some of the most like calm therapists I've ever met are those damn IFS therapists. <laughs> <laughs> and, she was yes. like, what? and she was like, what's IFS? And now she's invented this amazing app uh, for wow. IFS use and everything. But I always thought that was so funny because yeah, all those things are so beautiful. It's like all these different resources and ways that we can turn in and really connect with just helping our system, helping our yeah. system in whatever way that it needs to feel that safety, to process these stuck points uh, of where parts of us are really stuck in the past and carrying that fear and that pain. Right. And we don't have to be stuck in the past. We don't yeah. have to be. So I'm just so grateful, Stephanie, that you shared all of this amazing information. And like I said at the beginning, this is a six hour long training <laughs> that we yes. can, that you yeah. condensed into one hour. So if you're interested in uh, attending that training, what did you, where'd you say it was located again? Um, it's on Heisel and Associates. And if people are interested in working with you, mm-hmm. where should they go? Yeah, they can, they can text that number that I gave. It's okay. probably the easiest way, but you can go on rightmindwellnesscenter.org as well. And um, you can look at the kind of stuff that we do. And I think I have links to my trainings on that website, actually, now that I think about it. Um, and there's a book online feature. So people could directly book one of our services there. The, That's um, One of the main things that I want to summarize about trauma that we might not have explicitly said, um, but that I hope was one of the takeaways is that trauma is not something we can just talk about. Like, yes, we can talk about like what it is in like a podcast like this, but in terms of actually like healing it and treating it, like you have to teach a person that it's safe to be calm again. And so like, if you don't 
involve the body. And if you don't involve like the whole person, then it is unlikely a trauma will be solved. So if anyone is going to traditional talk therapy for trauma, they're likely not experiencing a ton of progress. You know, they might have really good rapport with their counselor, but that's because they finally have someone that feels safe and they might even be projecting parental or romantic Mm -hmm. feelings or something. But at the end of the day, it's, it's gotta be more than just talking. You've gotta be able to reprocess that somehow. So, and there are plenty of resources out there to do it. I have a major, major heart with people with trauma, which happens to be, like I said, everyone. So I have a big heart. (laughs) Yes. It's all of us. It's all of us. Me too. Yes. Yeah. And me too. And and it's everyone. And again, I'm so grateful for you and the information that, that you share. And I'm excited to keep talking with you and working with you. Oh, heck yes. Me too. It won't be the last time. Thank you so much for having me. 